We're back with Backstory, the show that takes a topic from today's America and explores its historical context. I'm Peter Onuf, here to represent the 18th century. I'm Ed Ayers, speaking for the 19th century. And I'm Brian Bellow, standing in for all things 20th century. When the recent batch of census numbers was released, most of the news coverage focused in on the actual data. But today, we're going beyond the numbers and looking at the census process itself. For the past few weeks, we've been inviting your questions and comments on our website, and our producers have invited a few of you who weighed in there to join us on the phone. First up today, we have Rebecca calling in from across the northern border in London, Ontario. Rebecca, welcome to Backstory. Oh, it's so nice to be here. We're talking about our census, so why are you calling? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Actually, I'm kind of curious about how Native Americans figured in the census, and Mm -hmm. uh, from a Canadian point of view. I'm kind of curious about the Great Plains and the prairies and everything, um, because I know people were moving around a great deal in the 19th century still. So I'm kind of curious about how people who are moving around are kind of in national space but aren't really of it, and who can cross that really porous 49th parallel quite easily. Like, how exactly would they figure in the census, and would they be counted, or were they just kind of a big blank? Well, as you can might imagine, it changes over time, which is the only reason we have a show. (laughs) But uh, if I'm not mistaken, the first time that the American Indians were really included in the census in any really meaningful way was 1870, Mm -hmm. which you will have noticed is centuries uh, (laughs) after the first contact. In some ways, it went hand in hand with a greater attention to all kinds of ethnicities. And so there had been, as we've heard from Melissa Nobles, an annotation of mulatto all the way back to 1850. After emancipation, they began to add in other ethnicities, such as Chinese and Japanese. But by the time you get to 1890, it seems incumbent upon the census to slice and dice African-American identity into ever smaller pieces, all the way down to octoroon, one-eighth blood. So as we see, over the course of the late 19th century, the Census Bureau uses its expertise, its greater reach into the American population, to draw ever finer gradations across the American population. And American Indians are a part of that. Yeah, Rebecca, I loved your expression, national space. And I wonder if uh, you'd like to tell us a little bit about uh, your own perspective on this, that is how to pin people down, in effect, and to count them. And in the early censuses, of course, they weren't counted because they were not part of the constitutional population for purposes of representation. They were instead outside the bounds, yet somehow they were also within this national space. Well, that's what I just find so interesting about it. So it's like the nation is kind of arriving around them while Mm -hmm. they've got an entirely different culture and economy and way of organizing themselves that sort of encroaches on this dynamic space right in the middle of the country. So, Ed, what about 1870? What was going on in Indian country? Well, let me ask you a question. What happened in 1869? Ooh, one of those big battles? No, the Transcontinental Railroad. Oh, yeah. Okay? Yeah, yeah. So this is obviously after the Civil War. Right, you've got the right, Union right. Army out there, as they see it, pacifying the American Indians. So it's interesting that um, the American Indians finally gain a presence only at the time that the American government really feels it has command over them. Yeah, Rebecca, it's a great question. Well, and thank thanks. you so much for answering my question. <laughs> thank you. Okay, bye-bye. have a good day. Bye. Bye. So 
So in the case of Indians in the second half of the 19th century, these statistical categories really become a means for government control. Was that also the case on a your century, Brian? Yeah, I would say even more so. Um, certainly by the 1920s with the rise of the eugenics movement, a movement that believed that people's destiny was determined by their ancestors' genetic material. People are looking to control more and more. Uh, so data that you guys have been talking about, race, mm-hmm. that had always been part of the census, now got operationalized, yeah, if you will, yeah. a 20th century term, if there ever was one. Right, right. Uh, that meant right here in Virginia, for instance, people couldn't marry other people based on what race they were. And we tried to enforce those racial divisions more and more strictly. And, you know, you talk about operationalizing, which really is a truly ugly 20th century word. It is. I take such pride in it. Yeah. What would you say in the 19th century, Ed? Um, (laughs) Making manifest. (laughs) That's very good. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. So speaking of operationalizing, Brian, or making manifest, the danger comes when the the numbers are turned into individual people. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me tell you something that happened right here in Virginia, in Richmond, in the capital, back in the 1920s. A man named Walter Plecker, the head of the Bureau of Vital Statistics, decides to use the power of that office to really interrogate the racial identity of people who are applying to him for marriage certificates and birth certificates. He would write to new mothers and say, I see you've registered your child as white, but our records here show clearly that his father is black. You better not have this young boy going to school with whites, marrying whites, because the state is watching, right? So, you know, as wow. insidious as the three-fifths clause was and as the, the abuse of aggregate statistics was, it was this sort of lowering of the boundary of the state to really penetrate into the most intimate aspects of people's Mm -hmm. lives that I think even the people who believed in so-called racial purity in the South recognized how dangerous this was. And Plecker really was forced to retract. We've emphasized the negative aspect of all this racial classification, but by the end of my century, people are actually asking, demanding to be classified. And that's because Increasingly, there's legislation that requires racial classification. I mean, the, the, the most important of those pieces of legislation is the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And it's based on the underrepresentation of African Americans, primarily in the South. And how do you invoke the Voting Rights Act? Well, you need to show that a certain percentage of African Americans are not being registered at the polls. And this data provided by the census is crucial to one of the great mobilizations in all of American history. That is African-Americans beginning to vote in the Deep South, which they had not been allowed to do for almost 75 years. So I have a little test for you guys. All right. Where in the larger American empire in the 20th century Mm. was race not used in the census? Hmm. Hawaii? Larger American empire. Yeah, Hmm. that's kind of a hint. Wow. 
Okay, uh, what else do we have now? We don't have the Philippines anymore, uh, barely. Uh, how about uh, Puerto Rico? You got it. Puerto Rico, hmm. after 1950, dropped the question of race, and it didn't start asking about it again until 2000. I asked Fernando Armstrong, the Puerto Rico area manager for the 1980 census, what explained this strange omission? The concept of race in Puerto Rico has never been uh, as prevalent as it is in the uh, states. If we go back to the history of the island, the Puerto Rican population is a very, how would I say, complex mix of the European, the African population that came as slaves, and the local Indian population that lived in, in the Caribbean. So the concept of white, black, Asian is not very uh, meaningful concept in the island of Puerto Rico. So, uh, Peter, Ed, Puerto Rico, the first post-racialist society in America? Yeah, I think that that's a, a fair way to think about it, but you could also think back. To before. I was hoping you would yeah, think back, well, Peter. I, that's what I tend to do. I'm a backward <laughs> thinker. Uh, to, of course, the pre-American period in the Caribbean, in the Spanish Caribbean. And uh, our categories are utterly alien to those of Cuba, Puerto Rico, and uh, other islands where you have really mixed societies. Yes, that's an interesting point, Peter. The racial complexity of the Caribbean is suddenly radically simplified when – Puerto Rican people come to the mainland mm. in the 20th century, and they live here for a while, and the federal government looks around and says, you know, I see a new ethnic identity here, which is that all you people are speaking Spanish, and we're going to call that Hispanic. And so suddenly in the 1980s census, you have a whole new category that's not racial in the way that they would have thought of things in the 18th or the 19th century, but rather is a kind of a racialized concept of a language that someone speaks. Mm -hmm. And you know what, Ed? The remarkable thing is that Mexican-Americans whose families have been living here for hundreds of years yeah. all of a sudden find that they're part of that new category. And you know what else? The three of us are part of a new category. We are non-Hispanics. Oh, and even right. though even though I hmm. won the Spanish award at <laughs> Ponce de Leon Junior High School in Carl Gables, Florida, I am a non-Hispanic all of a sudden. <laughs> but guys, in all this discussion about identity, it's very easy to forget the fundamental purpose of the census, which is to apportion the United States and determine representation. Mm -hmm. And that's where Puerto Rico is actually really pretty interesting again. Because as members of a U.S. protectorate, the citizens of Puerto Rico don't get representatives in Congress. Mm -hmm. So if, in fact, as you pointed out very early on in the show, Peter, <laughs> that one of the incentives for folks for filling out the census or responding to the enumerators mm -hmm. was to get counted and get voted, why would anybody bother to send back their form or talk to an enumerator in uh, Puerto Rico? I put that very question to Fernando Armstrong. Uh, you are correct. In Puerto Rico, uh, there is a resident commissioner uh, in Congress, uh, only one, 
uh, and there's no apportionment of the House, any change as a result of the census. Right. However, at the local level, at the state level, the Puerto Rico legislature is apportioned, the redistricted based on census figures. I and see. At the municipal level and city level, all those uh, local districts are changed based on census figures. Yeah, Mr. Armstrong, you make such a great point because we think about the census as, well, it's written into the Constitution. It's, it's a very national, federal program, yet the data, even in Puerto Rico and in states and localities on the mainland in the United States, they use these data for all kinds of very important uh, local and state redistricting decisions. Right, right. And, and on top of that, uh, Brian, the uh, every year, more than $400 billion dollars are distributed in many different ways using formulas that use census figures. So uh, it's political representation, and it's also economic power that the localities receive with a good and accurate census. That's Fernando Armstrong. He spoke to me on the phone from Philadelphia, where he now serves as the director of the Census Bureau's regional office. 